You're listening to the Alan Carter Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Good Wednesday afternoon. Tasha Carradine here sitting in for Alan Carter on this hot and humid day. Nice and cool in here, though. And a lot of hot stuff going on, though, uh, to talk about. Um, some of the things that really... I guess in this day of surveillance everywhere and uh, intrusion into our privacy, uh, first story that really caught my attention was one about our election, of course, because I'm a bit of a political junkie, but one that says we are going to be targeted. In fact, we're being targeted right now by influence campaigns. CSIS came out with this, and they're saying that there are actors out there they won't name. This is the really spooky thing. Um, There are covert and overt operations or attempts to influence the October 21st federal election, according to the Communications and Security Establishment. And uh, the intelligence community has identified the foreign actors who are attempting to do this, but they won't tell us who they are. Now, I don't know, Dusty, does that creep you out a little bit, knowing there are people who are going to be trying to influence your vote, but you won't even be allowed to be told who they are? Yeah, I'm trying to figure out how this will work. An influencer? <laughs> so will they be, you know, posing on Instagram and somehow there's some sort of subliminal messaging of who to vote for? I don't know. Elections Canada hasn't hired these people. Uh, they, they tried that with a bunch of social influencers. That didn't quite work out. I don't know, man. I'm from the States. I watched this happen already. This is like deja vu for me. I know. It's a rerun, isn't it? Totally. It, yeah, it is. It's not very original. And you think by now, after what happened in the States, people would kind of twig to this. But the threat actors they're talking about... Um, Apparently, we'll have a broad scope of foreign interference activities. And one clue, one clue that might you know, give us a tip off as to who these people are is a senior government source who said that diaspora communities are being targeted by foreign actors. Uh, that source, who apparently has direct knowledge, according to the Toronto Star, of Canada's efforts to safeguard the election, was granted anonymity to speak frankly about these ongoing issues um, of course, top of the list of uh, potential diasporas to be affected and country that's been doing a lot of, I guess, uh, sort of stomping around is China. And um, that's probably the number one uh, actor that seems to be on the you know unofficial list, according to sources. China, uh, of course, involved with a dispute with Ottawa over the extradition, the detention of Meng Wanzhou. So I would be surprised if they would try to exert some influence, because obviously they're very unhappy with the way this government has handled her extradition. Though I'm not sure any other government would have acted differently. I don't think the conservatives, had they been in power, would have you know not listened to the United States and respected our treaty with them. So China might be one of those people who's looking over your shoulder or sending you a meme or who knows what. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see how original they get. Other cyber players, Russia... Saudi Arabia and India, apparently, are also on the list for having had tense relations with Ottawa. India? Uh, I don't. I mean, apart from Justin Trudeau's parade of outfits there, I don't know what tensions we've had with them. Maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, um, motivations of the countries differ widely, according to Stephanie Carvin. Uh, she's a frequent guest here and was interviewed by The Star for this. She's a professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, former intelligence analyst. And she says there's actually a traditional espionage component of this. Uh, so this is not exactly new. It's just the way things are being done. They're going to be looking for emails that are potentially embarrassing. The other thing they could be looking for uh, is understanding how political staff and politicians communicate with each other for the purpose of generating forgeries. So maybe we'll see all sorts of things come out that, you know, the fake news syndrome, um, emails and pieces of junk on Facebook. 
in any event, we know the Liberal Party and the federal government are taking this very seriously. Hopefully they will, you know, try and flush these people out before they do any damage. But it's, it's hard to do, especially when people spread news themselves and get taken in. Now, of course, it's not just these foreign actors who might have uh, various parties or political officials in their sites. There's a co-owner of a bar in Red Deer, Alberta, and uh, he did something kind of special on Canada Day. He hung a large piñata of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in his bar and uh, encouraged people to take a whack at it. Apparently, the piñata held things like candy, money, and he said other things that were promised by Trudeau that didn't necessarily materialize. Uh, And maybe I shouldn't be laughing too hard because he hung the piñata up by its neck. Yeah. Uh, the excuse he gave was that for structural reasons, we had to zip tie the rope around his neck because someone would have hit it once and it would have fallen. Do you buy that, Rebecca? I'm not too sure. Uh, you know, I was just sitting here visualizing it, trying to think I of have another place right here. to put him. There, yeah. I mean, if you put it around the waist, then he's hanging like, like you know, Superman. Superman. By his ankles looks a little strange. Too. I don't know. Maybe that would be upside down. You know, that wouldn't be good either. I think. I think it was a that was a failure in the construction, original construction. Yeah. Well, apparently, customers in the bar got a kick out of it or a punch out of it. I'm not quite sure. They could hit him, I guess, with a bat. Um, in any event, uh, there's been all sorts of protest and backlash online to this, uh, partly because of the neck thing. Um, to which the bar owner said, actually, uh, there's been worse protests in Alberta. We just really haven't seen that many of them out here in eastern Canada. But he said he saw kids carrying signs with Trudeau on fire and other things a little more intense when there was a recent convoy of big rigs that came out from western Canada here, drove out to Ottawa to protest uh, lack of federal support for the oil and gas industry. Um, a bar owner says, that's a lot more going on than a piñata at a party. This is true, but at the same time, I kind of draw the line at effigies held up by the neck. I don't care if they've got candy in them uh, or, you know, they're supposed to be funny. Uh, That sort of tips over into bad territory. And if that had been, you know, uh, think of somebody else in there. Rachel Notley, you know, was pilloried in the last election. There was an issue with a portrayal of her. Her face was put up as a target at an oilman's golf tournament, and uh, that was condemned all over the place. Uh, so you know what? You can't have it both ways. Um, I think in this case, can't really do that to Trudeau either. I think it deserves some condemnation there. Uh, something else that deserves condemnation, though, is something that the Trudeau government apparently has been indulging in. Something that's kind of familiar here, unfortunately, in Ontario at the provincial level lately. Um, but uh, friends of friends getting appointments. Dominic LeBlanc. Yes, he is the federal intergovernmental affairs minister. Um, you'd think he'd have very little to do with the judicial appointments that are made in Canada, because that's not his area, not his department. That's uh, our friend, Mr. Lametti, you know, who replaced Jody Wilson-Raybould. And uh, Mr. Lametti, who's the new justice minister, has appointed uh, five of the six last federal appointments announced in LeBlanc's home province to be actually friends and close connections to LeBlanc. One is his neighbor, one is a family relation, and there are also three lawyers who helped retire Dominic LeBlanc's campaign debts from his unsuccessful 2008 leadership bid. Uh, five out of six. Okay. Uh, that, to me, really is something that needs to be looked into, because if anything, the judicial system is the one that we really try and separate the influence of politics out of the mix. It's supposed to be nonpartisan judges and lawyers. Judges or lawyers become judges are supposed to get there on merit. 
And there's no question that, of course, people will apply and they may have political connections because a lot of lawyers are active in politics, whether it's fundraising or other things behind the scenes. But five out of six happen to be people who are really connected to him. In fact, one of them seems to have bought a property from LeBlanc on the ocean, no less, for the lovely sum of over just over $400,000. This almost makes you want to move to New Brunswick because you get a waterfront property, Dusty, for four hundred grand and a judicial appointment. Yeah, it makes me want to be friends with Dominic LeBlanc. Indeed, I mean, you really can't <laughs> lose if you're friends with this guy. I should go, you know, I should uh, go back to practicing law, perhaps. Anyway, um, a study that was done in 2010 that looked at 856 judicial appointments in Canada over a 15-year period found that in New Brunswick, major political connections were involved in 77% of them. So maybe it's a problem there. I'm not sure. But with, with, with what's going on here lately in Ontario and, uh, you know, the Dean French saga, I hope we're not copying their politics because that would be really, really disturbing. He is the canary in the coal mine of a dying empire. That is uh, from The Simpsons. And that is uh, being played because we're talking about coal. Coal being a fuel that people are trying to get away from, something that is seen as a uh, well, a blight in terms of carbon dioxide emissions, a dirty fuel that also pollutes in uh, physical ways. I mean, you go to cities where they're using coal-powered energy, and we know we turned away from it in Ontario because it creates smog. It is dirty stuff. And what's replaced it? Well, in some places around the world, in particular China, they're looking at liquefied natural gas, LNG. It's been touted as a great environmentally friendly fuel. It's a form of natural gas that is compressed into a liquid and uh, then it can be exported around the world. So all sorts of countries are scrambling to take advantage of the demand as China in particular and some other markets too turn away from coal because it is not only bad for uh, emissions, but it is, like I said, creates that toxic smog, which is also it's a health effect. Now we're learning that <laughs> there's just no justice in this world. Apparently clean natural gas could be the new coal. Seriously? To talk about that now, we're joined by Ted Nace. He's the executive director of Global Energy Monitor. They've just put out a report on this issue. Hi, Ted. Hi, how are you doing? Well, I'm a little depressed here. I got to say, because, you know, every time it seems we find something that uh, is better than the fossil fuels we're using, there's a downside. And this one might have a serious downside, I understand. Uh, Yeah, unfortunately, uh, um, you know, that is the bad news. The good news, there are other options. Okay, well, tell us the bad news, though. I mean, how bad is it? Because why, for example, does LNG, liquefied natural gas, uh, increase the problems that we have right now in terms of climate change and greenhouse gases? Right. Uh, So, uh, as we know, natural gas is cleaner burning than coal, uh, and it generates 40% less carbon dioxide, which is generally the greenhouse gas that people focus on. But 
The other uh, the other part of it is uh, the fugitive emissions of methane from the natural gas, the stuff that gets released during the drilling process, during well blowouts in the pipelines and at the end use. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, methane is uh, over 100 times more powerful than carbon dioxide as a global warming gas. So even a small amount uh, getting out can undo all the benefits of, of using natural gas. Um, so that is the dilemma uh, about gas. And then when you're talking about liquefying it, uh, sending it across the ocean at 160 degrees below zero, it's a very energy-intensive process, adds another at least 10% uh, emissions. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the, uh, creating uh, you know a brand new 1.3 trillion of infrastructure that'll last another 40 years, uh, you know, of fossil of fossil emissions is totally contrary to what the climate scientists are saying we have to do, which is to scale down pretty quickly now. Over the next 10 years, they're talking about natural gas needing to go down by 15% and 40% by mid-century. Okay. Um, problem is, though, as you said, a lot of companies are already invested in and are putting investments into this infrastructure. And Canada in particular is looking at this as a boon for us. Uh, apparently, we could provide natural gas to consumers for 300 years, according to a website that the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers put out. So a lot of jobs could be on the line here. Um I mean, how do you how do you tell folks time to turn off the taps on natural gas? We we've just turned them on, and people who are looking at maybe losing their jobs in the oil sector are saying, "Hey, now you're going to kill us on this side too." Uh, you know, what do you tell those folks? Yeah, I mean, it really reminds me a lot of what people were talking about ten years ago about coal here in the U.S. Um, similarly, they, you know, they were saying 250 years of coal, which is true. Unfortunately, in order to sell that, you have to have a buyer. And the way uh, renewables are dropping uh, around the world in terms of levelized cost with battery backup, uh, it's uh, it's already pretty much neck and neck between uh, renewables and na- natural gas. I mean, we see coal plants being abandoned uh, in mid-construction in India, uh, replaced by solar farms. So when you're talking, again, about this 40-year investment, I would say the answer is to just proceed with caution, especially investors. The investors in the coal sector lost their shirts between 2011 and 2016. There was a whole wave of bankruptcies from, you know, over-leveraged companies. And this is being driven, uh, you know, at the supply end, this, this fracking boom has been so successful in generating a lot of gas. North America can't absorb all that gas, so they're counting on these Asian markets to grow and absorb all this gas. But the danger from an investor standpoint is that you build it, you can use it for five years, you build, use it maybe five or ten years, and then suddenly you don't have a market anymore because Asia has shifted so quickly. And they do move quickly over there. Um, so the, the bottom line is uh, in Canada, uh, you know, over $530 billion are lined up for these projects, but uh, very few of them have actually gone into construction. So it's, it's not too late to scale it back. Um, you is, know, it's a, uh, it's it's still in fairly early stage. Uh, is this also driven by the folks who don't like fracking? Because one of the ways to get natural gas is, as you mentioned, fracking, um, which uh, there have been a lot of protests, a lot of places saying, you know, uh, don't frack here, this kind of thing, uh, because it's seen to disturb the water table and have other effects. Is there anything behind that in the sense of pushing this research? Because 
this stuff is is relatively new um, in terms of coming to the public's attention. But the people who are against fracking have not had that much success in stopping it otherwise. I'm wondering if this is something they're looking at and saying, hey, now we can have an argument about this. We're going to push this side of it to stop the uh, use of fracking to get natural gas out of the ground. No, I, I, it's it's not really a fracking analysis. I mean, uh, at least our analysis, we don't really look at environmental impacts of fracking, whether it's good, bad, or you know, indifferent. Uh, this is more of a global warming analysis and an investment analysis. Okay. I was thinking investors too, and you mentioned investors, I want to go to that because um, a lot of what's happening we're seeing around the world is sort of disinvestment in fossil fuels. And that's one of the places that environmentalists are pushing and saying, look, um, you're going to lose money if you buy into these projects because we're turning away to renewables. That is a way of shutting them down or slowing their growth um, faster than otherwise. People don't want to, like you said, invest in something that could be obsolete in five years. How do we know, though, in five years that we'd have enough energy, other sources to replace the LNG or the other fossil fuels that people would have counted on using, if not for renewables? Yeah, well, this is where, you know, the environmental goals happen to align pretty well with the, uh, you know, the investment goals. You see uh, people like Warren Buffett has completely shifted away from fossils and, uh, you know, gone to basically wind power. Uh, the state of Texas is now closing coal plants down that are only seven years old, and they've become the leading um, <clears throat> producer of wind power in the United States. So this isn't really a green agenda anymore. It's more of sort of the big energy transition is happening. Uh, a lot of a lot of players like uh, Lazard Bank are analyzing these life cycle costs of the various alternatives. And renewables are really ma- becoming mainstream. Uh, you know, a, a lot of the advocacy uh, is is now coming from you know some of the m- most conservative funds in the world. I mean. Take take Norway, for example. It's very similar to Canada in terms of where it's gotten its wealth. Uh, this big Norwegian investment fund for basically a pension fund, over a trillion dollars. Now Norway has decided to completely shift away from coal and more and more forms of, of, of oil in their fund. They're, they're disinvesting from this very industry that made them uh, wealthy. And that's been been driven not just by environmental concerns, but their concern that they basically follow where the economy is moving toward renewables. And it's undeniable that, you know, renewables is widely considered the place where, um, you know, the growth is going to come from in the 21st century. And, you know, and if you don't believe it, all you have to do is look at the uh, price of, of oil company stocks over the last five years. They're just going nowhere. All right. A different kind of green uh, that might be driving this, too. Um, I want to thank you so much for your insight on this. Ted Nace is the executive director of Global Energy Monitor. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. All right. Very interesting. I you know what? Uh, I feel that while I'm I am a big believer in renewables, I do think we also have to have a balance because if we decide to put all our eggs in one basket and this is this is the issue uh if that basket suddenly tips over doesn't work out for us then we're left with what very expensive energy that's what happened in ontario um our guest was americans i didn't want to take them up on that point but uh here we know that the obsession with renewables the 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 government plowing head first into it under the liberals resulted in locking us into contracts that are costly above market prices uh, people all of a sudden converting all their fields to solar farms because the government paid them to do it. If you meddle too much in the market that way, you end up with overpriced energy. And I'm wondering here, I, I would be not surprised if people who had an anti-fracking agenda 
uh, for environmental reasons, would latch on to this argument and say, now we can say, look, the stuff you get out of the ground has its own problems. So never mind what fracking does to the environment. Uh, the gas itself isn't good. It's going to create more global warming than it's worth. So don't do it. A lot of arguments being made on that one. Um, some other gases or substances I want to end this segment on. Uh, this story caught my eye because it kind of hit home in a way. Uh, smoke from pot, not from fossil fuels, but from pot, is causing some trouble at a Mississauga condo building that has created a hit list some residents and tenants say, by making a registry obligatory. They're saying all 141 units of some place called the Courtney Club Condos, located on here, Ontario Street, just north of the Queen Elizabeth Way, uh, says that they've got to basically put themselves on a registry if they decide to smoke pot. Residents who smoke cannabis and related products in their units at a time of passing of these rules must register in the Unit Cannabis Smoking Register in the management office within 30 days. doesn't say what happens if you don't do that. Um, but uh, the rules are supposed to have taken effect on July 1st. They haven't been enacted yet, though, because the board has to go through some due process. And, of course, some of the uh, residents are saying, well, what does this mean? I have to actually register if I smoke pot. Um, smoking pot is a legal thing to do. But, of course, a lot of condos are having this issue. And I only say this because, you know, while I love my neighbors where I'm living right now, they're very, very sweet. They do smoke an awful lot of pot, an awful lot of weed to the point where if we're having dinner on the patio, which we don't do a heck of a lot. Uh, I got to basically say to them, hey, can you just abstain for an hour or so? Yeah, I know. Rebecca, you feel my pain on this one, too, right? I think that uh, you say there's some people in your uh, in your neck of the woods who remain nameless who smoke a little too much. I definitely, yeah. When we're on the balcony, yeah. Or my kids, they have the little the fan in the window. <laughs> your kids that? have a fan to deal with the pot And smoke? then all of a sudden you see, yeah, and then you have to blow it out the other direction. That happens. Dusty, you have something for this, don't you? That, that smell. What's that smell? What smell? <laughs> Yeah, that smell. Well, and that's funny we say your kids because my daughter knows what weed smells like now and she hates it. And so she'll yell at people. She goes, stop that. It stinks. That does not make for good neighbors either. I don't know if I'd want a registry, um, but at the same time, I think condos do have a right to put down certain rules. Uh, because if you do smoke pot and it gets into someone else's unit, that's where your, you know, your neighbor has a cause for complaint. Um, having a list just of people who smoke pot uh, occasionally, I'm not too sure if it's not a problem than outing yourself um, in that way, because it still is. I mean, there still is some stigma, and that's probably why these people here, some of them feel that they don't want to be on this registry. Um, it's not illegal, but it could be seen as unreasonable because condo rules have to be reasonable. And someone could say that is too much of an invasion of privacy, particularly if it's, you know, maybe it's for a medical reason or other, and they don't want people to know. And here all of a sudden it's uh, like a scarlet A, like a scarlet, what, P, W, what would you put on your on your forehead for this one? Does he? I don't know if it'd be scarlet. It'd probably be green. Green. Yeah. It would be a green W. Exactly. Walking around with that in the condo buildings. Like, you, you smoke weed. You're the source of the problem. Now, since we've opened up a few more programs, it's actually going to be a little higher. Seems to be numbers flying all over the place. So we we need to get a handle on the exact count. But I I can guarantee you one thing. We're going to utilize that money wisely. 
That's Premier Doug Ford talking about changes to the Ontario Autism Program, a program that's been uh, mired in controversy ever since the former um, Minister of Children and Youth Services uh, announced those changes. Uh, Lisa McLeod took a lot of heat, uh, not just for the content, but for some of the attitude that she evinced while putting forward those changes. And as we know, uh, they've been changed back because the idea of simply giving a hard cap to families of a few thousand dollars a year um, didn't make sense for some kids who needed a lot more and some kids who might need less, leaving families in the lurch and desperate and protesting at Queen's Park. I mean, it was a bit of a nightmare. I, I think probably the worst file this government has handled since they were in there. Um, so now they've changed things up a bit. But people are still unhappy. And now, most recently, uh, the Globe and Mail got a copy of a report done by one of the MPPs, no less, Roman Tabor. He did an internal review for the government that was not made public. It was obtained last week by the Globe through an anonymous source. And it said that a repeated assertion by the government that 23,000 children were on a list waiting for services was unverified and is likely inaccurate. Baber wrote that this wait list was really a combination of several lists the ministry compiled from regional providers of autism services. Uh, The implication being that since families might register their child with more than one provider, you'd have duplicate kids or duplicate, you know, waiting spots on the list. So it'd be less than 23,000, not the 23,000 the government was using. Mr. Baber has declined to comment on this. Um, but he also, in the report, heavily criticized the government for the way it handled the autism file. And in response, uh, Ford said they're going to continue listening to the experts and the changes they've recommended. Well, someone's come out of the woodwork, I'll say, uh, to uh, talk about this and express his opinion. Michael Cotto, uh, MPP, uh, liberal MPP, who was involved in this file when the liberals brought in some changes, and they were super unpopular, too, as a piece in the Toronto Star today saying, how to fix Ontario's autism program mistakes. Welcome to the program, Michael. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. Uh, Interested to see your take on this because your government got a lot of flack when you came out with uh, what's been termed, you know, autism ends at five. The idea that after the age of five, kids were cut off from intense behavior intervention funding because it was seen as not as effective after that age, which was disputed by a lot of experts. And you guys ended up doing a flip-flop on this too. So, uh, first of all... uh, how do you feel now coming out and saying this? Uh, do you feel that someone might just, you know, say, well, well why are you, you know, criticizing the government? You guys did it worse. So you have to remember when I uh, got the file, uh, the previous minister um, made an announcement with the, uh, the age cutoff. And uh, then I was asked to come in and uh, reassess the program because there was a lot of public outrage. I remember. Uh, in regards to the decision that, uh, that the government made. But two things I think you need to keep in mind. Number one, um, when we actually made the initial change, uh, we added uh, half a billion dollars in new funding to it. Uh, the hard cap, though, um, you know, uh, just just really uh, became the, the central issue, and the anger was, uh, was strong. And uh, Kathleen Wynne, the then premier, asked me to go in and, uh, and work with parents to fix it. Um, so... Again, you know, there was a, uh, a new investment. And number two, um, the government immediately said, OK, we've got this wrong. What can we do differently? 
Um, well, I, uh, I will say in. it wasn't immediately. I remember actually being at one of those protests. There was a lot of back and forth before was, the government it was changed. Within, its mind. What a three month period, right? From yeah. the announcement to, to me stepping in. And then I came in and, uh, and, and made those changes. And the changes that I made uh, was to remove the age cutoff. So it was just needs based. Uh, to make sure that there was a central point of, of entry into the program. And there were no more in and outs, because what happened before, you got a young person who's, who got the assessment, got an allocated time, and then had to go back and reassess, apply back to the program. It was just a complete mess. So we got some things figured out, and um, parents were happy with the, the progress that we were making. It wasn't the perfect plan, but people knew that it was the plan that actually was making a difference in the lives of, uh, of people. And I know this because I've gone right across the province and I've spoken to thousands of parents about this program. So I know that we're on the right track. It wasn't perfect, but it was on the right track. And then, lo and behold, uh, Doug Ford gets uh, elected. Uh, there's a new uh, mandate uh, to, to have the PCs come in and, uh, and, uh, and, and run government. And they completely switched the program uh, back to basically an age cap, uh, which was something that they were arguing against for the last two years and really you know, hitting the Liberals hard with that. So it's very confusing for parents to now have a PC government that advocated one way during the election. And now, once in power, they actually, you know, they've gone, they've reversed it back to where we were at the beginning. Well, the cap they're talking about now is you don't get no funding, but it's um, $5,000 or five or six, I believe, after the age of six. Before that, it's $20,000 a child. But they're saying now that that's not going to be a hard cap necessarily for kids who are, are, you know, where the need is greater. Um, what is the status right now? Because it's a bit confusing so for me too, big, as a parent, a to say problem, what you know, right? what are people this entitled to or not? And this is the biggest challenge, right? There's been no transparency with the government. So over the last year, um, the plan has not really, even the details of any plan has not been presented. But worst of all, the the two pieces that really get parents angry and just kind of expose the government for you know the tone that they've taken is number one. No new new entries were put into the program, so the program was frozen. We know that uh, the the then minister to made a decision to freeze the program, so there's no intake. Um, that's what we've been told by various media sources. And the second piece is um, what we learned uh, recently with the report that came out that uh, this twenty three thousand number is not a real number. It's a, a collection of all these different numbers. I would argue and. The government doesn't even have the ability, as a former minister, there wasn't even the ability to collect the right type of data because there were so many different types of lists that existed and different agencies using different systems. So the government can say one thing, uh, that it's going to make these changes, but they have not, they have not done anything to demonstrate that, there's, that they're ready to make those changes, and we've not seen anything transpire on the ground where it matters most. Okay, uh, to conclude then, what do we need to do? You set out three simple things, you say. Simple maybe, but not that easy. Really simple. Well, really simple things, I think. Number one, uh, the Premier needs to stand up and, uh, you know, it takes a a big person to admit that they're wrong. A really big person to admit they're wrong. He needs to stand up and I think parents would appreciate this and, um, and I think it would actually be good for his brand as well. Just stand up and say, you know what, we made a mistake like I did. Uh, for our previous go- previous government, I said, you know, we made a mistake. We're making a change. All he needs to do is say, we made a mistake. I'm sorry. Uh, we're going to uh, move forward. Number one. Number two, reinstate the old program that was actually working. It, it actually was moving people. We saw the biggest changes on those lists, uh, the reduction of uh, of people on the wait list and new entries into the program uh, in decades. 
And um, and number three, he needs to open up the door. And this is maybe for the the minister now, Todd Smith, who I think is a nice guy. Um, you know, I I, I, uh, I consider Todd Smith a uh, a friend. Uh, but what he needs to do is he needs to invite people to the table, anyone who's willing, and he needs to open up the door. You know, pull the curtains back. You know, put the put the documents and the challenge on the table and say, I need your help. And if they can do those three steps, it'll go a long way, and the parents will start to uh, to do everything they can to help this government uh, move forward. Okay, well, we'll see if they take your advice. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Michael Koto uh, is the MPP for Don Valley East. Have a good afternoon. You take care. Thanks for the opportunity. I drive by the site uh, often, and I was by the site over the uh, Canada Day weekend. And uh, when I saw that uh, uh, very little activity was going on on the site, I sort of uh, saw the red flag going up and realized that uh, that this thing was in jeopardy. That is a comment about the Roxidus Music Festival. Uh, apparently it was very highly anticipated, and now it has been cancelled had a lineup that was pretty big, actually. Aerosmith, Kid Rock, Nickelback, the band everyone loves to hate, supposed to be in Clearview Township. Organizers have basically said during the past couple of months, we've battled rainy weather at the Edenvale Airport where it was supposed to take place. And this has impacted our ability to produce the festival. And they say they're sad to announce the cancellation of the Roxas Music Festival this year. I understand, though, this is the first year it's happening. So a lot of questions, maybe more questions than answers. Uh, Alan Cross is in studio here shaking his head, too, (laughs) because, Alan, you're the media liaison for this festival. Well, they hired me to be a a media spokesperson. What is that? Okay. Uh, Just just to, to, you know, talk about the festival. I I mean, I met with them back in November. The first question I asked them, are you crazy? And they said, no, we're not. (laughs) Why did you ask that? Well, because it's a music festival, and music festivals are notoriously difficult to stage. But uh, I did my due diligence with these people. I They answered all the questions correctly. They ticked all the boxes correctly. Uh, I know that they paid the acts up front. And huh. they're dealing with big, you know, big uh, agencies and managers like William Morris and CAA. I mean, you don't book Aerosmith or Kid Rock or Leonard Skinner or Nickelback or any of these acts without the managers and the agents doing due diligence. So uh, I, I'm as as blindsided by this as as everyone else. I was supposed to be the stage MC for that weekend. Huh? Obviously, you got the weekend off. Now. I apparently do have the the dog will be happy. So I'm like you said, more questions than answers. I don't have any. I, the last time I talked to one of the principals was back on June the 11th. They had a Roxas pre party at a pub downtown with an ACDC tribute band, and uh, yeah, I mean the things ticket sales were going fine. The site preparations were going fine. Uh, they had hired a production guy from Coachella. They had done all these. You know, there was no indication on June the 11th when I talked to the big guy that anything was wrong. Hmm. None. Zero. And again, I had I, I, I had been hired back in November. This went through until about early April. And then I was I, I ended up having some health problems with kidney stones. So I was removed from this project for a little while. Uh, yeah. That uh, would remove you from anything. Uh, yeah, pretty much. It, it did. But I kept in touch with them. And, and right. they were, again... 
no red flags. Everything seemed to be going fine. Uh, if I filed an invoice for any work that I did with them, paid two days later. So, so it's not like another fire fest. No, 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 no. I, I don't think so at all. Um, you know, first of all, they had the good sense. If they couldn't stage the show, uh, they had the good sense to cancel it rather than have people show up and go, wait a second. Uh, but I can't help thinking that this is uh, like a financial. Yuck. Yeah, they're saying people will get re- information about refunds will be released shortly. It doesn't mean we'll get one, but they say that information will be released shortly. Uh, do we have any more information nope. at all? At this I'm, point? I'm this was the, announced today. I'm this. in the dark. <laughs> I I, uh, I tried, you know, when I started hearing these things last week, I made some phone calls, no answers. I made some email inquiries, got one person, but she never got back to me. Hmm. So they're... What do you think? You think that uh, they're going to pony up? Because, I mean, the the tickets for this are expensive. VIP pass for the event, $639. Single day admission, $129. I I have no information. Hmm. None. The only thing that I was asked to do was to um, conduct some media interviews and to be the stage MC. This is probably not the type of media interview you thought you'd be given about. Well, no, not, not at all. Uh, and you know what? I'm not getting paid for this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, not no. It's uh, it's definitely not. Course is not going to uh, top this up. Um, okay. Uh, I want to ask you though. There is something out there that Global News did find out. Uh, the OPP apparently told did told told Global News that their Huronia West detachment is investigating a complaint. That officers received late last week against MF Live, and that's the company that owns the festival. It's presumably been paying you Mm. and everyone else. And police would not say what the nature of the investigation was or provide details. We don't know if it's tied. Do you know anything about that? Honest to God, first time I'm hearing this. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, First time. There's uh, there's no formal statement. The police said they will not be releasing a formal statement on the investigation unless it leads to something concrete. Uh, so we don't know if that's tied to it or not. Now, the situation at that airport, though, they're saying it's a lot of rain. I don't. I have no clue uh, if that's true. I know that it was a challenge in February, March, April, uh, and into May because we did have a lot of rain. We had a crappy mm-hmm. spring. We did. And uh, they were preparing the site for, you know, they needed drainage. They needed to put down sod. They needed to fix this and that. Um, and I do know that they were experiencing some challenges earlier in the spring. Mm-hmm. That's all I can tell you. When you have a situation, though, like this with a music festival, and let's say, I mean, because this isn't probably the first time that a venue gets rained out or damaged or whatever, mm. can you just, can you move it somewhere else? Is this too short notice to there do? There was or? one rumor that they were going to move it to Burles Creek, where we had the Rolling Stone show over the right. weekend. I guess that's not happening. Hmm. But in, you know, in general, I mean, wouldn't you try and save a show? I'm just thinking of other festivals that have happened. I think, again, more questions than that. All these are very <laughs> good questions. And until the principals of MF Live uh, let us know what's going on, that's it. Got nothing. All right. Well, you it's, look sad. You look well, sad, I, Alan. I, mean, I was really looking forward to it. Yeah. I mean, it was going to be a four-day thing out in the sun. Right. And I was going to have an all-access pass, and I was going to be, you know, hobnobbing with the, with the rock stars. And, and paid. Uh, and getting paid. Who's your favorite band among the ones that would have uh, been there? I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Matt Good. I like Matt. Oh. So, I, I, you know, would've, he was going to be there on Sunday. And, wow. And, you know, for a lot of these artists, you know, usually what happens in the concert world is you are contracted to play for a fee, but then you're given a deposit, usually, not the full, full right. amount. Right, so they cancel you out the balance. You, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I don't know whether, because this was a first-year festival, they paid the full freight for right. every act just to lend them some financial credibility and to get these people to sign on the dotted line. I don't know. Uh, somebody's got to write a book about this one. (laughs) 
We'll see. The mystery will be solved at some point. I want to thank you for coming in. And, That's okay. And we got Woodstock 50. Tell us oh, what you know. Wait. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have Woodstock 50 either. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Alan Cross. It does make you wonder. I mean, there's other, other outdoor festivals I'm thinking too. Uh, Boots and Hearts, you know, for the country fans. That could get rained out. I'm not sure what they're having it this year, but uh, a very muddy situation if you're, uh, if you're looking at a spring like we had now. All right. Uh, somebody else who's kind of in a muddy situation. Still not clear. Talk of a, something that has more questions than answers, too. The story about that cartoonist in New Brunswick, Michael DeAdder, just keeps going. Um, he was the cartoonist who was let go from the New Brunswick newspaper chain. And it happened after a cartoon that he did of Donald Trump uh, and the two migrants, father and daughter, who died trying to cross the Rio Grande. He did a cartoon where Trump standing over them with a golf club saying, mind if I play through over their dead bodies. And it was considered a rather offensive cartoon. I mean, it is. It is an awful image. Um, And a lot of people took offense to it, said it went too far. Um, Then he got laid off, got fired. He was a contract worker, so I guess fire is the wrong word, perhaps. And people immediately made the association and said this was, you know, the last kind of thing that he the last tipping point of his cartoon career for for these folks he did a lot of anti-trump cartoons and they weren't maybe fans of them and so that's why it happened ever since then uh the company has been saying no this is not why we did it and in fact they've now put out a statement brunswick news actually went that far to put out a statement saying over the course of the weekend false information spread widely across social media about a decision at brunswick news to bring back a popular cartoonist to its opinion pages and end a freelance contract with cartoonist Michael DeAdder. Uh, BNI is reaffirming the following, that the decision to cancel Mr. DeAdder's freelance contract, note the insertion of the word freelance very uh, clearly several times in this news release, was made weeks ago, at which time negotiations with his replacement had also started. Mr. DeAdder was not a staff member, nor did he have any decision-making authority at BNI. Uh, BNI's opinion pages remain a place of balanced debate with a focus on local issues affecting New Brunswickers. We make selections every day based on quality, impact, and relevance to our local audience. Of course, New Brunswick is close to the U.S. border, but I digress. Uh, Michael Diatter, like I said, had had a sort of history of making cartoons, uh, vilifying Trump. This was not his first one that he did. But he hadn't shared this one with BNI. He hadn't actually even offered it to the paper. So... I not clear. It's not clear whether this was a tipping point, but the timing of it, I guess if you're trying to avoid a media storm, if you're trying to avoid being accused of doing something which you say you didn't do, then maybe they should have thought of that one and decided that, hey, um, we're not going to terminate you right now because people are immediately going to make the association that that is why we did it spawned this whole debate about editorial freedom and the rights of cartoonists. In fact, in Quebec, they even made a a pun of, oh, not a pun, a play on his cartoon. Uh, they reprinted it in a paper there, and they did the, they changed it to French, which Trump is now saying to these these two dead migrants. He's saying, do you have my ball? Avez-vous ma balle? But they did this uh, cartoonist in solidarity with Michael DeAdder saying he's been silenced, he's been muffled. Reality is, unfortunately, um, his employers have the right to publish whoever they want. And if they don't want him as a cartoonist, um, he's an editorialist and they can let him go. He was not speaking on behalf of the paper. He was not. He doesn't own the paper. 
he's not part of the management. So that is what happens. And uh, there are lots of other places. I, in fact, apparently he has a lot of offers already for his cartoons. So it's not like he's going to be going into obscurity. Um, but unfortunately, none of us have the right to uh, a platform for our opinion, just to our opinion. And on that note, I will sign off with mine. I want to thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank Rebecca Coots here for producing Dusty Lalas on the board. Global News Radio, Toronto. The water was rising and the tide was coming in.